This podcast is produced by Unedited. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to The Dreamer's Disease with myself, Alex Manzi. And here is where we try to inspire you to become the best version of yourself by hearing the stories of someone inspirational who's out there following their passions and chasing their dreams. Because it's the disease of dreaming and not acting on those dreams that causes us to live unhappy lives. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by the very amazing photographer and I guess storyteller, Holly Marie Cato, AKA H Cato on Instagram. You may have seen her work, it's incredible. But before we dive in, I'd like to thank you for listening, for hitting play, for checking out the episode as ever. You know it means a lot to me. And while you're here, I'd really appreciate if you could hit that subscribe button and also make sure you follow the Instagram account, the underscore dreamers disease for daily quotes and inspiration to perk you up during the day. So on this episode, me and Holly Marie, we sat down and we had a really great conversation. She's got this really warm personality that just kind of draws you in. And she spoke a lot about how she turned a hobby and a passion into a full-time job, almost by accident, which is quite a funny story. And how a huge family, and when I say huge, I really mean huge family, has influenced her life. And why she puts a real emphasis on storytelling and trying to bring people's stories out of them through her photos and the way she films and documents. She also spoke about how she documented the London riots and her images and, and what she was capturing became one of the main sort of visual bits of content that you were seeing during that time. And she also shares a couple of funny stories. One of them about a abandoned building that her and a friend once uh, I guess broke into but then ended up going back a year later and and bringing people into that building as part of a project which is quite hilarious and then the second story which is what we're going to open on is about how we first met even though we were already in contact with each other about trying to sort out the podcast we hadn't officially met and it's quite a funny story so we'll kick off with that and I hope you guys enjoy this episode I certainly learned a lot I hope you do and hope you enjoy we need to tell people how we met oh yeah Alex Manzi. I met Alex Manzi at an event for Hussein Manoir. I was there putting up a camera, getting ready to film his set that he was going to do at Twitter HQ. And in fact, the girl that I was talking to when you first came in and I didn't know, stopped talking to me to go say hi to you. So I saw this figure in the distance, but... um, that was Megan Watson. Yeah. But I didn't know who you was because I actually didn't know your face. Yeah. So imagine now, now we're in the building. I'm there sorting out a camera. You was in a line for food and I could hear you speaking. And I looked up and I was like, I recognise that voice. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've heard that voice before. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is Alex. So I called you and you was just like, and I was like, I recognise your voice. And you was absolutely freaked out <laughs> by it. Like, Whoa. <laughs> That's never happened before. I was like, Oh my god! I'm gonna. I've seen it before. I'm gonna have to start changing my voice in public or something. <laughs> but the thing so is, funny. is that like when I said, if I say I like listen to something, I started listening mm. to your podcast, yeah. and um, I was really enjoying it and hearing it. And you have such a soothing voice. And so like when I heard this soothing voice in the distance, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is him. And then I I learned what you look like after that day. Yeah. Yeah. And likewise, <laughs> I need I need a name because you don't post a lot of pictures of yourself i know and for the longest online. time people thought that i was a man from new york so every now and again i tried to post a picture of myself just to remind <laughs> them <my people. laughs> i'm Lo- i'm from yeah. london i'm a black woman with an afro hey yeah nice say that, that is gonna be one of my favorite stories for a while i think i am with the very incredible and amazing 
I don't want to say what you do yet because I want you to do that. Holly Kato, aka H Kato. 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 Oh man, I'm gonna have to start again. No, you're good. A lot of people him. say Kato. I, I blame him people... for that. <laughs> no, all no. Italians say it like that. Gato. I'm not even offended. Yeah. Do it, do yeah. it, do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're good. You're good. H Kato. Kato. So yeah, how's it going? Hi. Good. Good. Um, okay so to start us off with can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do um i'm holly i i'm a photographer i like to say like i'm a human being yeah i do photography i also do film yeah um i'm an amazing host for dinner parties always love people around my house <coughs> and um <laughs> was was that like why am I not invited? What is this? No, just, <laughs> was that cool? I just, just a um yeah, that's it. Nice. And so tell us then a bit about your photography work because that's your kind of main body of work other than I mean unless you have dinner parties every night, I don't know. But um how you first got into that and where that passion stemmed from. Um I kind of think I fell into photography. I studied architecture. Yeah. And um, while I was at architecture school, I think during the summer, um, one year I was back home and I remember I was just sleeping in because that's what students do, right? And my mum like came into my room and was like, um, come and do behind the scenes photography at this theatre, they're putting on a show in Tottenham. Mm. And I was just like, no, I'm, I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping. Um, and went back to sleep and like literally something shook me out of my bed and was like, get up. That wasn't my voice. I'm gonna say like, I felt like it was God. Mm -hmm. And I got up, did not wanna get up and um, ended up going down to that theater. I was taking pictures for them. And I just had like a little, it, it was just like, it was a small camera, it was a point and shoot, didn't really know how to use it. Um, but as I was taking those pictures, there was a protest outside. Okay. And I started to take pictures of this protest. Um, and I remember people just like, oh, are you from the press? And I was like, no, I'm just taking pictures. And people were like really engaged with this camera because I was the only one there. Um, and I would like go back and forth inside the theater to take pictures, find out what they were doing and then go outside. Mm. And this protest got bigger and bigger to the point that they like closed down the road and no yeah. buses could get by. Um, and then as the day went on, um, in the end, I think the people from the protest ended up leaving and then young people came and it quickly turned into something else. And then people started rioting and then they were throwing bottles. They were smashing car windows. They were burning down um, buildings and then it became the Tottenham riots, but I didn't mm. know that at the time. Wow. And that was like my first real yeah. experience with photography. Oh, wow. And yeah. I remember just like, um, at one point I was outside and the caretaker of that building said to me, literally said, you need to get inside. We're looking everybody in, this is mm. crazy. Um, so I ended up like climbing inside this old building and all like the top floors were being renovated. So I remember like dropping my bags and it was like pitch black and you could hear rats. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? But I just wanted to get to some rooftop space yeah. so that I could take pictures of what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And I started and I took a few like film clips and my hands were just shaking through it because I'd like I've never seen anything like mm. this before. And you could literally see like families walking across buildings to get away from the smoke. Yeah. And I was just like it, it was it's still surreal. Yeah. Um and then 
we ended up me plus i think 500 people who'd come see the show ended up getting evacuated by like police um and i remember like just saying i need to go take pictures and my mum just grabbing me going you're not going there like you're crazy um and then in the end i think it was her she contacted like the bbc i don't know how and was like look hey we've got this footage do you want it and they kind of said oh no but we'll keep you in mind and then when the riots continued and it spread to other cities they were like Mm. yeah we're gonna make a show with panorama about it so they like bought the footage from us and like my mum managed it all and like um and then in the end I think The Guardian used it. It went to other places in Europe. Yeah. BBC, uh, I think Ra- BBC Radio 4 used, like, sound. Um, and then that actually helped me to, like, pay for the next, what was it, year, two years of my degree. Oh, really? And just, wow. like, stuff. Because yeah. when it came up again, then it would buy more. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, usage rights. Yeah, the usage rights. And that was the whole... I never even knew about that. So it was, like, a crash course in photography, mm. really. Um and obviously i went back to university but i think photography became a big distraction yeah because for the first time like something really excited me and it was scary but it was like i've never had that experience before and i just kept thinking this is what i want to do and probably fast forward i ended up finishing my degree really badly really badly and um I think it was a a good year where i never even really i don't know if my mom knew this but i did kind of have a graduate job set up that mm. I never oh, really? sorted out. And remember oh, my mum would ask and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just sorting up one portfolio so I can go find a yeah. job. I wasn't, yeah. I was, I was, I mean, I wasn't really, I was just like thinking, I just want to take pictures. Yeah. So for a good year after university, I was very lost, didn't really know. I think I didn't really vocalize that I went to do photography. Mm. It was still too unknown. I didn't really know anybody who was doing it and i didn't know how you yeah. how you were, were you just it. like exploring i just knew at this, at this i did not want to sit in front of a computer on autocad for 10 hours a day yeah and i always said i would do a job where i'd never have to wear a suit i always said that so yeah. i don't know what i was doing thinking i could do architecture <laughs> i mean you know smart casual but um yeah so it wasn't until i was in london officially through actually like instagram i met really good friends who ended up being my three like brothers and we for one summer i remember we were all broke but we saw more of london than we'd ever seen without iphones i think two of them had cameras yeah and it was the happiest summer I'd ever had. Like, honestly, we were. Bro- I remember if I had £10 in my account, I felt rich. <laughs> like, we would wake up early in the morning, like, jump barriers just to be like, and we would go, where do we want to go? And we would just look at somewhere on a map that no one had been to. Yeah. Or we would Google about, like, where's this abandoned place? Or have you heard of this? Or ha-? And we would just go. I remember one time getting a train. We didn't even know where we was going. We walked for almost four hours in the middle of nowhere. Ended up at this, in this abandoned building with wild horses that were chasing us. And like, it was just, every day was exciting and you never knew what you was going to do. And we were just sharing that journey on Instagram and Mm. that like following just grew. And then after that, one by one, we were all getting booked for jobs and it kind of happened, but in the most like unexpected of ways. Yeah. Were you just then, I guess, following something that you were quite interested in, in terms of like exploring different parts of London that you've probably necessarily been to, but documenting it at the same time? Is that kind of the vibe 
right. you were going with and it was the three of you were doing it and the four of us yeah four of you sorry yeah, you were yeah. doing it and it was just naturally building and building building yeah. because there was an element of like you were discovering this stuff as 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 well as the people who were following you it was like seeing it for the first time all yeah. over again it was like places that you had walked through but actually really seeing it and taking mm. our time to like understand how people move through a space. I remember we'd just be on the underground sometimes and we would just look at people doing like commutes, but looking at like their faces and mm. taking their pictures and really being, and it felt like you wasn't even a part of what was going on anymore. You yeah. were just this spectator. Yeah. Um, and the whole world was going at a different speed to you. Mm. Um, have you ever seen like, you remember that, um, have you ever seen that film Limitless? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy then takes the the pill yeah. and everyone's moving around him, but it's like he's seen it at a different speed. Yeah. That's what it was like. Oh, wow. It was amazing. Like almost like a heightened experience, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then, so for you, at that point, you obviously had decided that photography was the route that you wanted to pursue. Mm. But did you have any ideas of how you were then going to make it Heck no. A job. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I think the moment when I finally was like, okay. I remember one day we had just gone somewhere and we would go random places. And then afterwards it was me and one friend and we decided to go to Heathrow Airport. So I was like, we can get to Heathrow by the tube, mm. let's just go. And I remember he said there was some tunnel and it kind of reminded him of like a Stanley Kubrick movie. So it was like, yeah, let's just go see this tunnel. Um, and then we were sitting in a lounge that we had no rights to be in. <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, I think you could do photography, you know, you'll be really good at it. And I remember that was the first person who ever said you could do it. Mm. And like, I believe that you can do it. And how and remember, did that make you feel like? And, oh, amazing. And like, I still look up to his work. I think he's one of the best photographers in London, point blank. Mm. And um, that's non-biased honestly um and yeah i remember like when i got my first jobs like these guys were lending me their cameras like that's their babies we didn't have no insurance we didn't mm. have nothing and um we would just share equipment to be like okay i got this job Here, here's here's my camera just don't break it be careful yeah. and we'll go and wow. shoot it, and then you give it back and it was just that hustle no one had i didn't have the camera for a long time mm. um that's but crazy. it was exciting and and like because i was looking through a lot of your photos and your work and i went like right back in oh, the feed geez. tried not to like too many photos <laughs> from back in the day but um i started what, hiding that yeah <laughs> started hiding stuff i was like I'll need to, I'll need to. one thing that i i got from your photos was an element of i guess storytelling in the mm. sense that you capture a moment but then also have like a really cool explanation around it or you put your own little spin on it is that storytelling element something that's really important to you massively yeah. um yeah massively i it, it's something i'm still trying to do better because i feel like honestly photography is just my way of communicating and i want to know how and i still i'm still like learning how to communicate what i'm experiencing better mm. um but I just have the weirdest times. Like I'll be walking in Brixton and someone will come up to me and we'll just have, and I think that's why I do film now as well. Yeah. It's because sometimes the picture doesn't adequately say, this is the whole moment that I'm experiencing. So now I just want to document it. Um, so I'm like, I'm trying to take the picture. I'm trying to film it. Um, but yeah, I just want to tell 
real stories of London that people haven't seen, you know? Because I think when people come, sometimes you can see the Big Bens, you can see the Westminsters, the the Shards, and all these great, beautiful things that make London, but you don't see the underbelly of London mm. that also makes London. You don't see the amazing characters that have been at these markets that have existed there for the last 25, 30 years, or, and they've seen a change, or like I was saying that um, I grew up near Poplar, and you've got streets that have been there since the Blitz. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, maybe this won't be here for much longer, or mm. I don't know, but, I kind of just want to tell that and obviously no one can tell it from my eyes only mm. I can tell and I and I never also understood that I used to always say my work's not about me my work's not about me and it's such a lie my work is about me because it's my eyes and it's my words and it's how yeah. I perceive the world around me yeah so well I'm going to flip back to you what yeah. you said to me before we start recording okay, okay. is that no one can do it like you can yeah because it's your view yeah so, and it is that's it's what it true. is and it's yeah. so it's no it's something really powerful and you know i think having those experiences particularly in the way that you showcase that mm. is is wicked um but where where do you think that you get that passion for storytelling from where does it stem from i get that passion for storytelling mm. <laughs> um I don't think I've ever thought about where I got that passion for storytelling. Um, I just can't imagine doing anything else. Like mm. nothing, I think all you do is tell stories. Yeah. Whether you acknowledge it or not, like my favorite thing to do, I would always choose having my friends round, cooking a meal and having as much friends I can fit around the table mm. in my house and us just sharing stories. I would yeah. always choose that over a night out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what are we doing? We're essentially like we're just gathering around a table and we're sharing stories. I come from a huge family where we, and when I say huge, my mum is one of eleven. Jeez. Yeah, and all of my aunts and uncles have kids, and each of them I think the most one uncle has eight kids. Wow. And now those kids have kids. Another uncle has six kids, and those kids have. Oh, so. Wow. I don't even know, and that's just my mum's side of family. Mm. Like, I remember one time we did a family reunion and it was just my mother's, my grandmother's side of family. It's like one quarter of our family and yeah. there was 150 people. Wow, that's So, insane. yeah. So who, who caters for the parties? Oh, we yeah, we did. <laughs> we, we bring caterers. Yeah, yeah we have Jeez. to. Yeah. So... The whole thing is, is that like I come from, it was just, I didn't, I also didn't know that it wasn't normal for you to finish school, go to your grandparents' house and at any given day there would be 15 people in the house. I didn't know that that wasn't people's normal. But I just remember growing up every day, going home from school and it would be like me, five or six cousins, we'd walk to our grandma's house. There would always be something that she had freshly baked or cooked just waiting for us. And then there was always massive Dutch pots for the food. Yeah. She never knew how many people was coming, but it didn't matter. There was always food. Yeah. And then um, we would just be there. It was in the living room or in the kitchen and people would be sharing stories. Yeah. And we would be cracking up and laughing. So I don't know. I think there's just this innate thing of always hearing stories, always being entertained. And I guess that's filtered into my photography, but I never mm. thought about it until you said it. Yeah. Yeah. Discover something new about yourself every day. <laughs> that's what we do. Um, <laughs> So, like, just touching on your family then, because you've got such a large family 
and it's obviously quite a well um well knit almost yeah, like community within yourselves yeah. what would what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned from your family as a whole um that they are there for you. I think my family, for a lot of it, I never had to worry. During the summer, I was with my cousins. My cousins were some of the coolest people I ever met. Mm. I would choose to be with them every single day, whether it was playing PlayStation or being out or listening to music. Like, they are number ones. But um, I think family are the people that love you unconditionally. They're the people that annoy you too. <laughs> Everything's heightened with numbers, right? Yeah. So people sometimes when I'll film family, whether it's at Christmas, sometimes I'll show people like what my Christmas is like and it is chaos. Mm. And people are always like, oh, I'm gonna come to your Christmas. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. This is my normal, I, I love it. But we could never do the sit down Christmas where everyone's gathered around the table and you bring out your nice china. There is too much of us. Yeah. We're using disposable items. Yeah. It is like a factory of people going in <laughs> and a factory of people going out. Yeah. We're probably the only Christmas where there is no heating on. Every window and door that can be open is open because there is so much body heat there. Um, but I think the flip side of that is, and this is, I think, probably similar with a lot of, whether it's like Afro-Caribbean um, children mm. who are first or second generation British is that when you want to do something creative you've also got to remember that they might not understand Yeah, and that's the truth of it and um, being okay with that but being okay with not needing their validation mm. yeah my mum has always been supportive I've, there's a few people that's been supportive that have been like I don't understand this but I know you're going to do something great and it's not to say that others have been negative, but they don't understand. Mm. And then when they ask you questions, it's always loaded questions like, well, what are you doing that? And then I kind of like flipped out at one point. So I, I told one uncle and I was just like, the way you're asking it is you want me now to explain to you my life choices and to feel the need to validate myself to you. Mm. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. If you're really interested, let's sit down. I'll show you. I'll explain like mm. there's some stuff happening, but I'm never going to come to you and ask, and I answer these questions and I feel like mm. I'm required I'm required to just validate my life choices for you I'm just trying to be happy yeah and you know what I think there's a really good moment in there in terms of like a clip because I feel like a lot of people will relate to that mm. because I feel like a lot of people have that almost pressure to explain themselves and what they want to do with mm. particularly their family mm. but why do you think there is so much of that pressure on people of our generation and even the younger generations that are now coming through um, to, to, to find their own way in the world? We are probably the first generation of people where you do not need a job title to create a career. Mm. We would sit in school and your teachers would say, what do you want to be? And you would have to know what that job was called. Yeah, fireman. Uh, yeah. Uh, Whereas Artist now we're the yeah. first uh, generation of people where you just have to know what that job feels like mm. and looks like. It doesn't even need a title. Yeah. I remember sitting in history and there was me and a friend when we was in school called Tia and we would just write out in different calligraphy and different fonts the title of the history lesson. Yeah. And that's all we would do. <laughs> we didn't even do any work. I yeah. loved history, but I loved listening to it. Yeah. I wanted to like hear the stories. I didn't want to answer this question about 1066. I'm not interested. Yeah. I, just, I I've I've heard it is good yeah. but i don't need to write 
uh, like the all this the... stuff yeah and yeah. plus i'm dyslexic this is not yeah. interesting to me and i got a short attention span um but i love just like we would take all our gel pens all our pens and we would just write down oh look at this font and we would copy the different fonts off different books and i remember our teacher said um he said something like you better concentrate because when you do school that that's not going to get you a job mm. and then fast forward to three years ago I'm sitting on a train trip traveling across America with yeah. Amtrak. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to a guy who's my age and his job is to literally sit there and draw different fonts for different brands with his hand-drawn mm. pen to paper, stuff that I was doing in school and a teacher turned around and told me, you can't make a job from that. Yeah. And he's successful. Yeah. And yeah. he's making it for himself and he's bringing money back. And I was like man i wish i could go back and say but this is like like now i'm telling my cousins don't worry don't worry if what you're doing if you're not good at school don't mm. worry if like you feel like you're failing those exams or whatever it is as long as you try your hardest but like literally we are the first generation of people where what you do does not have to have a job yeah. title yeah. that's like and how much of you, that do you think is down to the educational system in the sense that you know, right now, as we record this, there's a whole bunch of kids in the UK going through their GCSEs mm. and their futures and their the way they're being perceived in their school life is down to what grades they get in those exams. Mm. That's so scary. <laughs> exactly. So, like, with everything you just said about having an opportunity these days to create a job for yourself where you don't necessarily need a job title, you mm. just need to know how it feels, where do you think that breakdown is between that and the way the education system set up? I think the education system is is there to create like elitist structures, right? Because mm. every year an underfunded school does amazing. And every year underfunded schools do amazing. What they do is the government say, okay, let's let's increase the grade boundaries. Let's make it a bit harder. Because they never want to say all these kids are doing well despite Yeah the underfunding despite everything that's stacked up against them let's just make it harder so that the people that have the most who are naturally succeed the most we keep those elite structures right mm. so that we have we we have that because eton can't be filled up with ordinary people i was actually thinking about this on on the train the other day and just like wow you have to at so young know what you want to do like i remember at school they'll be like now you got to choose if you're doing double science or single science but if you do double science that means you get to do all of this and if you choose single science that means all these doors are closed to you and i'm just like man i mean i i from the age of seven said i wanted to be an architect i always wanted to design buildings mm. and the crazy thing is now now that i've been out of architecture for how many years maybe four years I'm losing all those skills that I learned. Like yeah. I, I've still got the skills. I know to use Photoshop and I know to use certain things, but there's other practical stuff that's a little fuzzy around the edges, right? Mm. I feel like I'm closer now that I could design a building than if I was an architect. Really? Okay, wow. Simply because like you got people like some of my favorite architects never studied architecture. Do you know how mad that is? Mm. Tyre Ando, boxer, credible architect. Zaha Hadid, I think she got an honorary architecture ship, but she was a furniture designer. Mm. And I'm just like, maybe if I'm excellent at this, somewhere down the line, I would get to do that level of design. Mm. And it's always gonna take a team of people. It's never gonna be me saying, this design's gonna put up a wall. That's not how it works. Mm. 
someone designs it, another person makes sure it can stand, another makes sure it goes through regulation. So I could probably do that. And the 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 thing is, I think where the education system is now, it's just limiting. Um, I think it failed me as a student because I'm a practical learner. Mm. I don't want to sit there in front of a classroom every day being spoken to, spoken at. And I think it doesn't recognise that kids learn in many different ways. You have the traditional academics, but you have the kids that need to be out there. And like, honestly, schooling never told me how to do my taxes. <laughs> schooling never told me how to be a capable adult. Yeah. Schooling never told you how to deal with emotional issues or mental issues. It told you how to pass an exam. It didn't even tell you how to become a good writer. I never thought I could do writing. Mm. I never thought I could do maths. But I managed to get through every year and get my taxes in. But then, and that's the thing is that like, it just shows you how to, I remember I studied German for six years. Mm. I can barely speak German. Same. But I got a B because I, I learned how. I tell you how to say set square. That's, that is, is it? Important. How do you do it? Do you... I think it's psychondriac, I think. I don't even know that. All, all I remember is, um, I was just like, I remember speaking to my teacher going, if I like stutter or if I like, don't know how to form words. Will I lose marks mm. if if I like? And he was like, "Yeah, but what you could do is you could say it in German, and you won't lose marks." So I was like, "Okay, let me learn how to do that." So that I knew whenever I didn't know how to say something, as long as I said that um in German, which was alles so, I wouldn't lose marks. And I remember he would ask basic stuff like V Gates, how are you? And because of the pressure of the exam, I was like, alles so. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck did he say again? Um, and then I remembered one phrase, which was literally "Können Sie das wiederholen bitte," which means, "Can you please repeat the question, please?" I cannot remember practical things in German, yeah. but I passed that exam and got a B. So what does that show you? Is that like after six years of studying, all I learned was how to pass an exam? Mm. I didn't actually learn anything practical, and I just hope, especially for my young cousins that are now sitting exams, that like this doesn't limit them it doesn't yeah. make them feel any less capable yeah. um and i think my family really get that they're not putting a lot of pressure on my cousins they i think they're also understanding that this system is just not working mm. so they're just like do the best you can to study together and then let's put it aside yeah because whatever they're born to be they're going to be regardless of what a piece of paper says yeah no it's so true because i feel i know i work with a kids football team that are going through the GCSE period at the minute and I can just sense the pressure that they're under. Mm. It's just, I thought it's not, it's not right for them because they're so young and it's, it's a lot of pressure for what is essentially going to be not much of a result in terms of in 15 years time. Right. Like, I can't remember the last time anyone asked me about my GCSEs. Right. So I feel like that pressure's unfair. But um, what I do want to talk about as well is like from your photography point of view, what is stylistically where mm. do you get your influence from because you've got a certain style but i also feel like at the minute it's quite a popular style i guess <gasps> not popular in no, a, no, do you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's quite like there's a lot of stuff upstairs where we're yeah. recording right now which is a very similar it's in vogue yeah yeah and so where did you get that influence from when you started to kind of take on that style yeah. of photography and um I don't know if it was conscious, but I think that's also like, almost like the echo chamber of Instagram. Mm. And the more I think that I'm doing stuff and it's my own style, my, and then you look around and you're like, oh, I see this edit. And, 
where I got that style from, I think it's just the streets of London. Mm. I think the way we edit here is so different. I can't say we edit, but um, the way I edit, I just want it to be, be as real and as vibrant as the city around me. Yeah. But I'm also beginning to recognise that, like, when I say go to India, the light in India is nothing like the light in London. So the way I edit is always responsive to the environment I'm in. Mm. But, like, that whole style of London, and you compared it to some of the pictures upstairs, is because there's, like, this rawness and this grittiness and some of the, um, some of the images was of grime. I am, by my own admission, not the biggest grime fan. Um, I definitely listen to grime but I think there's more people who are more in immersively yeah. in it than me. So it would be fake to say, this is my, this is what I rep. And um, I think grime is a, but I still think that grime is a big kind of influence on the images that we see in mm. it because it encapsulates this rawness and this grittiness of London. And especially when you don't live in zone one London, you know, is and I think yeah I think that's just what it does and I think that's what my images are kind of like a response to whether I always am aware of it or not yeah I think it goes to say a lot really because like I said the storytelling element and the portraits and capturing those yeah. like really cool moments I saw one that you put up of uh, I think it was a woman that you were taking a photo of on some steps maybe in Greece and there was like a guy walking up the steps that you'd kind of caught off guard and he was pulling like a why point a camera at me kind oh, of face and it was quite a nice Morocco. little Morocco Shoshawan, yeah. yeah and it's quite an interesting yeah. capture because of that moment that was kind of off guard yeah like you were trying to capture something else I love else. those moments yeah and they're the moments that I really enjoy when you yeah. see photos because it, it captures a, an actual moment rather than someone posing um but for you and something that I've always struggled to understand from a kind of photography point of view is at what point did you realize what you were doing was something that brands would be interested in um, investing in. When the emails came in. Legit, like the first two, three years, mm. I never asked for a job. Mm. Jobs would come to me. Do you know how insane that is? Mm. And I think I could not leave, could not, I cannot forget that level of just like being in awe, I'm still in awe, and um, gratefulness too, because I didn't know. Um, and also I was really good at making sure that they didn't know that I didn't know that <laughs> this was not normal. Yeah, yeah. So I remember at one point, like, honestly, oh, this is one of my first job, and I was like, oh, we can't get paid to, like, <laughs> you can actually like do this, this is insane. Mm. And at the same time, like, the company that were hiring me was just like, I remember we were sitting in like the back of a truck or like, what do they call it? Like a crew van. And they were like, oh, you must earn so much money. Like they were a bit like, oh, we can't, we paid so much money for you. But like, and little did they know, they were probably one of the first. Yeah. But I was so good at negotiating and knowing my worth because yeah. I just sat there and I, and I don't know where that came from. Like there's one thing, I remember sometimes friends would be like, oh my gosh, I've got to do this job, that job. I was probably doing one job, every two months wow, maybe three months yeah. and it was cool yeah i was comfortable yeah. um more than comfortable i wouldn't have to worry and it was simply because i knew how to negotiate i knew how to talk i am i am terrible when it comes to like friends pay me back money that they've lent me no one asked me for money um all this like working with people that i know but when it comes to people that you don't know in my brain i'm like it doesn't matter how nice they are 
they're not your friends. Mm. This is business. And you just got to earn money. Um, and then it was just being like, I remember someone said, whatever you think you're, you're worth, charge double. And it was the best advice I ever got. Yeah. Um, Have you stuck to that religiously? Sometimes it's been triple. Yeah. No, but like, honestly, um, and it's not to say every month is a popping month, um, but yeah, I don't know. Mm. I, I think I'm always telling people like, especially, but I think it's a London culture, you know, no one talks about, especially in my field, no one talks about money yeah. and everyone acts really successful, meaning that if you need help, how will somebody know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm that person where even when I get contracts, I would be reviewing my own 32 page contract, but I would never just sign it. Me, dyslexic, struggling to read, would sit there with fine print, just going, Jesus, help me to get through this. And then anything I didn't understand, I'd have another document and I'd literally take it out, highlight it, and ask that either for them to reword it. And I would literally tell them, like, this is too contractual. Mm. What does this mean? Mm. Um, because, and then companies would have to explain, but they would, or they would tell me, we have to ask our legal department. But what I knew is that, what you write is your paper trail and that's yeah, what keeps yeah. you safe so if i'm signing something and they've explained that 0.5 b 2 whatever means this and it really doesn't and i've signed it yeah then you you're covered it then i'm covered right yeah. so i would always just ask people what does this mean or can you reword this or can you take this out or i'm not agreeing to this or i'm not and i would always be so scared to sign contracts that i just didn't want that three years time mm. i would be scared yeah. I it, or it would come back to bite me. I think I'd heard so much stories of that of like, be careful what you sign, be careful what you sign, be careful what you sign. That um I just got really good at reading and replying yeah. to contracts. Still hate it. Still absolutely hate it. But um Is it is it yeah. still I guess it's still a big part of what you do, but do you find that the brands are quite flexible with that stuff in terms of negotiating and because a lot of people would assume that a brand will come to you and they've got the power because it's like, well, it's our money. We'll do what we want with it. Yeah. And if you can't do it for this fee, then we're not going to use you. But how how much can you flip the, the power to your side in a sense? I think you just got to be willing. I'm crazy. And I always say this when it comes to business, I'm crazy. There's been a lot of job opportunities that I've walked away from. Mm. Um, but I'm always telling people, what is my worst case scenario? I'm never gonna be homeless. I live at home. I'm never gonna be homeless. Like it's me, mom, and my sister. If I'm never gonna be homeless, if I know that I've got enough family in London that I physically, mm. I'm not going to go hungry. Yeah, well, you got fifteen thousand cousins. Fifteen thousand so cousins, good, you know. <laughs> but um, like, if I'm never gonna be homeless, if I'm never gonna be hungry. What is my excuse for not asking more and getting rejected or just saying no to a job that I don't want to do? Mm. What what is what is my biggest risk? Like, shouldn't I just be like insane, like do all the risk now when I don't have a crazy mortgage, when I don't have children and it's just me, right? Yeah. Now is the time to do the risk. Yeah. So has every decision I made panned out? No, but I'm also that person where if I feel like I'm being undervalued, I'll just say no, because what I've learned is that like money can come and go. Mm -hmm. I've met people that have been millionaires and lost it all and made, and made millions again. So if money is this thing that's like always here and always gone, 
what is like my most valuable resource that I have? Um, and it's time. Time is the only thing that you cannot barter, you cannot get mm. back. So if I'm not making the most and actually doing stuff that I really love, what's the point? Like I left architecture to take risks and what now I'm just gonna get back in a box and just roll over because mm. someone's dangling three grand in my face when I know that job should be a lot more. It's okay, I'm not gonna do it. Um, and I've said no. And this is the thing is because when you mention money, people are like, oh my gosh, that means you must always have money. No. I've said no to jobs where I've had £150 in my account and I'm talking to a friend in Hong Kong who's just said yes to the job and is hating it and gone, I need the job. And I'm like, girl, I'm crazy. I'm still saying no. Mm. And I've said no and I'm just like, I've got bills coming. I don't know how I'm paying it. And something always pans mm. out. But um, Universe has always got your back. Oh my gosh. Always got your if back. I'm being honest, I always say that Jesus is my cheat code. Mm. I believe in Jesus. And I'm always literally like, Jesus is my cheat code. I do not have to worry. Um, and sometimes I hold God to it and I'm like, God, come on now. Like... I cannot be sitting here believing you telling non-Christians about my cheat code Jesus. <laughs> but that is the truth. Yeah. I remember one time I left my taxes. I just didn't do it. I think it was my first year doing my taxes and I just left it. Mm. And you know, after you hit that deadline, you get a fine. And then I still left it. And then I didn't know that they're charging you £10 a day every day. Oh, wow. Three, four months later, I'm like, how much do I owe? And my friends are like, Holly, you're crazy. And I'm like, Jesus has to fix it because he knows I don't know what I'm doing. He knows, he knows. And, and my friends are like, oh yeah, Jesus is going to fix it, right? I'm like, look, as I'm telling you right now, Jesus is going to fix it. And then um, my the taxman I get, I don't even know he writes one letter. Next minute, the, the tax people are like, yeah, the fine you originally paid, we're paying you back and we're wiping off the rest of the fee. You're good. And you just have to pay this much for your taxes. And I was like... Jesus, you really fixed it. So I'm still living in this bubble. Obviously, like, you got to be wise about life. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I still don't know what I'm doing. That's mm. the truth. Um, I was saying this to someone today. I'm like, I feel like we're all just really good at pretending you know what you're doing. I've been doing photography for three years. Every job I've ever done has been different. Mm. Um, and I think the jobs that always they're telling you are the easiest are often the hardest because what they mean is it's just not organized. Yeah. That's a tip, guys. If they tell you that the job is easy, run or be prepared to know that like it's probably because it's not organized. Um, but yeah, I still don't know what I'm doing. Oh, no, but like seriously, truly, like I, I, I don't know. Every day I'm just like, oh, let's just see how we go. Yeah. yeah. Because there's still no security when you're freelance. Yeah, of course. That's the mistake. Like, you will get popping times you and you're like, okay, and then you won't. Yeah. But you don't know. And it's also the myth that, like, success is this. When success is actually, like, up and down. It's peaks and valleys. And and that's what people don't tell you. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, is that as long as you don't quit, you're successful. That's yeah. my thing is that sometimes I'm like, if you are in a valley and you're like, you do not know what you're doing, you're depressed, like nothing's coming. But just the fact that you haven't quit means that you're successful mm. because you're still in the game. Whereas there's people that have quit and they're settling and you haven't settled. Mm. So just keep going because often the people at the top are not the most successful. They're just the people that didn't quit. Yeah. And that's so true. I, I literally wrote something the other day like I send out a weekly newsletter um, 
on different subjects and normally based around the previous week's podcast episode. And I sent one out uh, this week, which is literally about that. It's about, it was about manifesting your dreams. But in essence, what I was saying is you will always be a winner if you're bold enough to do what you want to do and continue to do it. You will always be a winner because at the end of the day, the chances of us being born are like 400,000 million billion to one in the first place. (laughs) So we're already winning because we're here. (laughs) So if you can then take that Thank extra, God. you know, that extra like ten percent and and follow what you want to do and try mm. and do, you're always gonna win. Oh man, that is so deep. Yeah. I feel really special right now. <laughs> but that's the truth. It's I true. So it's so special. true. When you think about I'm it, like here. That, you know. Yeah. Oh man, that's yeah. gonna be a point of gratefulness. Yeah. You write that one down and say it to yourself every day. You. But like, so another thing I was thinking about, right, is that you are someone who seems to have followed this journey for yourself and you've Mm -hmm. taken risks along the way Mm -hmm. but what I find from conversations that I have and people I know and situations that people are in is that they may already be doing something that they don't necessarily enjoy but they want to make the jump to do something that they do enjoy and take that leap of faith or that risk what advice would you give to those people today is the youngest you're ever going to be so if you don't do it now, you might just wait another 10 years regretting it. When if time is really the only currency, like, again, money you can gain, money you can lose, but you physically cannot earn time back. Time is the most valuable thing. Hmm. If you know there's something deep down that you're burning to do and you're good at it, right? Don't start a rap career if you're not good at rap. Like, but you feel like you're you're burning to do it. Like, have a bit of wisdom. Um, I just think you have to take that step. My thing is, is that like, I believe in that creator, right? And if God designed me with all my wants and my likes and my passions, if he physically designed me, because it says that he like knows the very hairs that are on your head, then surely if I now do what he already placed inside me, there's no way that can't bring forth good fruit. That's no way that can't sustain me. That's no way, because that's what he designed me to do. Mm. So it's just like, well, if I believe in this God who's designed me to do this thing and I'm now doing what he placed in me, I have to be successful at it. There's no other option. And like, I just believe that down to the root of me. So... Yeah, and the cool thing about it is I don't even know all the things that I'm good at and I'm passionate about. I'm still discovering me. Yeah. So who knows, man? Like, I picked up film a year ago. Who knows what I'm going to be doing later? Yeah. Um, everything's still new. Yeah. And then wh- why is that film element, that documentation element, so important for you to now try and veer into that mm-hmm. as well as the photography stuff? Um... I mean, you touched on it earlier a little bit when you said because it, you can capture more, but yeah. what is it, you know, is there something more specific that kind of draws you towards it? I think, so there's this photographer, he's called Vincent Chapters. Mm-hmm. In one image, he can tell you a whole story. Mm-hmm. Like literally, no caption, no nothing. There is a story there. I'm forever in awe. That's the photographer that I said I think is one of the best photographers of our generation. The world hasn't discovered him yet. <laughs> But, like, literally, if he puts out a book, I'm a buy 10. Like, I believe in this guy. Um, but 
me, I don't think I necessarily have that that same skill. And my thing is, I realise, even though photography is still my first love, it is really the storytelling. And I was saying that I even want to work with sound, mm. where maybe I'm at a bus stop. Well, sometimes I'm at a bus stop and someone will come up to me and next minute they're sharing their whole story and they're telling me crazy things about their life. And I'm like, I wish I recorded that. Mm. But sometimes I wish I recorded that just in sound. So imagine yeah. you're hearing the sirens of whatever's going by, you're hearing footsteps, you're hearing people, you're hearing, and then you're hearing me engage with this guy. Yeah. And you don't know what I look like. You don't know what the guy looks like, but there's this moment in time, there's this story that's been shared and it's just out there. I'm not calling it a podcast, but I would love to just capture that in sound. Mm. I don't even think sometimes you need an uh, an image. Yeah, That's yeah, just yeah. itself. Some people are storytellers when it comes to just writing. One of my favourite photographers, his name is Rudy Roy, um, based in America, of Caribbean descent. I love him because I have not met or come across a lot of Jamaican creatives that are like reaching me the way yeah, he yeah. reaches me. So I'm like, oh my gosh. And honestly, to my writing friends, sometimes I just screenshot his captions and I'm just like, read this. Mm. I don't even send the picture. Cause I'm like, his yeah. words are so powerful. And then to another friend, I'll just take, a, I'll just show his, their pit, the picture of what he's doing. Mm. I'm like, look at this, look how powerful it is. Can you imagine like, one day I want to be that good. But um, my thing with the video is simply, it's just a means to an end. It's like, I am currently feel like, I'm going through my own art school. You know, in the first few weeks of art school, every two weeks you pick up a new yeah, yeah. a new thing and they're like, this week is going to be photography, this week is going to be sound, this week. And I feel like I'm doing that for myself. I'm just trying to discover what is the best way to tell a story and what is the best medium to use for that story that I'm trying to tell and how does it reach a bigger group of people? Yeah. And I think uh, some people are lazy and they don't like to read anymore. I'm coming across a lot of mm. that. And video is just a great way to tell a story quickly, engagingly, and it's reaching young people. Yeah. So that's, that's really the means to the end. And then I didn't know when I'd start to film, it would lead to work. Yeah. But it's that thing is that like, if you do what's inside of you and you do it boldly, right? And with almost, I didn't do it with that expectation of it will make me money. But um, You just did it out of the, the love and the passion for... Yeah telling these stories and creating this piece I mean, and the, the truth of it was i was taking a lot of video clips before i ever edited anything yeah. and i remember i was speaking to someone and they said the only way you're gonna get good is if you finally sit down and edit because all the clips you're ta you're taking until you edit it you're actually gonna realize how to take better clips yeah. and to film better um so two decembers ago i was in hong kong and um, I was taking a lot of video clips and I remember saying, and my mum is always telling me, Holly, be a starter finisher, be a starter finisher. You always start projects, you never finish them. And it's the perfectionist in me. Mm. I will not finish it if I don't think it's as good as my eyes can make it or my brain can make it. Um, but I remember she was always like, I'm praying for you to be a starter finisher. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to make a video of Hong Kong. And it was just like little montage clips. It was nothing crazy, but I was running about Hong Kong. And then on the plane ride back, I remember it's like 13, 15 hours. Yeah. And I had iMovie. I think I'd recently factory reset my laptop. So I probably had about 20 um, songs. 
Yeah. And I was like, this is not an excuse. You're going to pick one. You're going to mm-hmm. make a video. like. And I sat on that plane and with iMovie, I just um, knocked together a 60-second video and I shared it on Instagram. Yeah. And the reception from it was like really good. And I was like, okay, maybe this is fun. <laughs> and then the next month I was in Venice and I had a little point-and-shoot camera with me. And I was just with friends who honestly weren't into photography but I was just like, I was just filming little clips of us together. Yeah. And I knocked it together again using iMovie free software and I put it online. And then emails came in from agencies saying, we want you to make video. Wow. But they were calling me a filmmaker and I was like, oh my God, who have I fooled? I didn't know. <laughs> but um, this was the same with photography. I never called myself a photographer. I was always scared to call myself a photographer too. I always was like, I just take pictures. If someone asked me what I did, I'd be like, I just take pictures. And my friends just started to say, stop saying that, you're a photographer, like believing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the same with film. I've never, I never called myself a filmmaker. People in the room did. And then I, I felt like I was catching up. Yeah. So in the end, um, I shot a few things for a few brands. And then, um, and at the same time, I was given a job with British Airways. And they asked me to be the, the lead director and to also film it and edit it. And they gave me like production budget. I was like, what are you guys? Um, like, what is this? I didn't even know. I still had free software. Yeah, like, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. And and me being like the business mind, my camera was quite knackered. I was just like, oh, I need to go get a new camera if I'm going to do film. Um, and oh, oh, tip, I always ask, always, always ask guys if you do, if you do anything, whether it's photography or creative industry or you're freelance, always ask for 50% up front. Mm, because that yeah. secures the job don't because imagine now you've done all the work and then they're telling you 30 days or you're chasing the rest of the payment make sure that you've got enough to pay your rent or whatever you got so ask for your 50 and i literally just say like it's just standard for me to ask for 50 percent before any job begins and sometimes people and genuinely i think 80 percent of the time i'll get that money mm. and when i don't i'll say normally the, and i will email them and tell them this is normally an indication that i'm gonna have to chase money by the end of the month like please don't make sure yeah, like, in 30 yeah. days i have to do that um so i was just using money bought some extra equipment hired a guy who had dropped out of uni who even with what he knew he was like knew a lot more than me mm-hmm. And we were just this duo. And I remember the first day after I was doing filming, no, after uh, probably like, after we had done all the filming, I remember we they flew me business class to New York and we was filming something in New York. What am I doing? I have massive imposter syndrome, man. I was just like, but but actually yeah. I was an imposter, right? Yeah. Um, well, not, not necessarily. And, uh, and I just had an honesty where I was just like, I do not know what I'm doing. Mm. But I was just like, God, you don't set people up for failure, so let me just do this. And um, after we had done all this filming and we had like flown back to England and we had done the filming in England, then I remember sitting down and I was like, now opening up my computer, had like got Premiere Pro because that's what the pros use, right? And I was like, I think it took me an hour and a half to work out how to import media (laughs) but that was the truth i didn't know what i was doing and man i just call it a baptism of fire i had to learn very quickly and the videos came out and it was great and they loved it and i also challenged myself and i didn't realize i could do that work until it was done yeah that's sick yeah like i I just want to touch on like a couple of times there you mentioned 
you know, you were saying that you were, you took pictures and you weren't a photographer and, you know, imposter syndrome with the filming. And I get a sense that that self-belief in your skills and your ability and what you can offer is something that you often struggle with. Oh, massively. Why do you think that is? Massively. I feel like in many ways, even now, I'm still asking for permission, Mm. you know? I have the saying where it's just like, a man, a woman will cook her whole life, yeah? And she's your mother. A man will cook once and he's a chef, you know? Like, men just have this thing where they're able to just say, and maybe that's generalizing. Mm. I spent a lot of time well, in America. <laughs> I know. Do you know what it is? I, and I, I and I used to say this was America because I I felt like when I was in America a lot, everybody was like this and that and this, yeah. this, this. so maybe I should say America. But like, and I remember saying this to Americans, and I was just like, well, you know, sometimes I feel like men cook once and they're a chef, and women cook their whole life, and you know, you're yeah. just in the kitchen. And um, and I think I was around a lot of that American culture was just that like, wow, everyone was this. And I was just like, can I call myself this now? I, I don't know. Um, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I still get a little bit nervous from every shoot, even the small ones. Mm. But I think that's also good because it means that I never get sloppy, right? Mm. I never want to know that. I never want to be so sure in my own talent that I get comfortable and I get complacent. So that's the two extremes is that I should have more confidence. I'm actually a terrible networker. I'm so good at like just meeting someone in a room and talking because there's something innocent about that. Mm. But when it comes to networking, I always feel like you're doing it because you want something, right? Yeah, yeah. They're the connect. You're me- it's meant to come out with some type of thing. And I'm terrible at it. I can't do it. I can't open my mouth. I can't even say what I do. Um, it's like the 30 second elevator pitch is like hey I'm Holly I do this that and the other I've worked with this person and that person and I can't do it we should meet up and yeah yeah yeah. and actually I did a tour last year with the US Embassy and they told us so they took us to America there was a small group of us it was a very intense experience and uh, they said practice your elevator pitch and I was like what and they said Yeah. yeah you have to be able to describe yourself in 15 to 30 seconds yeah man that was not for me go uh, 30 seconds go uh, if I have to um, uh, see what I mean it's not <laughs> it's not easy like I could be like oh I'm a visual storyteller I'm a but it's like you know what I don't know mm-hmm. I'm also a person I'm breathing and I never want that that 60 second pitch really does become this defining thing about me yeah because um, there's this amazing book that I've read and I've read it probably like three, four times. I'm going to read it again soon and it's called Scary Clothes. I bought this book. I've bought more copies of this book than any other thing and I give out at least like 10, 15 copies a year to like friends. I'm going to give you this book. Okay. Um, And essentially it's about a guy who, at the time he wrote that book, his name's Donald Miller, he was a famous New York best-selling writer. Mm-hmm. Some of his books had turned into Hollywood blockbuster movies, but he it was him kind of exposing that his life wasn't all it cracked out to be. And it was him documenting his journey through therapy because he was terrible at personal relationships. He was terrible at a lot of things, and I think it was him kind of exposing that brokenness, but doing it in a book that people mm. can then relate to. Yeah. And one of the first things he said was, um, 
If I ask you who Michael Jackson is, who would you say he is? Singer. Pop icon. Yeah. Incredible dancer, singer. And in the book just says, no, that's what he did. That's not who he mm. was. And sometimes we know people because of what they do, right? And it's the applause syndrome. Is that like, we live in a world where you get applause for the things that you do. Yeah. I've I've done stuff as a photographer and I get applause from it. And then that validates me. And that my title becomes I'm a photographer. But really what happens if I, then I go through a bad season with photography, the work I produce I'm not proud of, or maybe the work slows down. Does that then now affect me? Is it now a representation of like who I am? Mm. And that's the danger of it is that if we link what we do too closely with who we are, if we get that sense of worth from our job title, it's really damaging because I would like to think that my mum will love me whether I'll take a picture or not for the rest of my life. And that's yeah. what I try to tell my friends is that when they're going through rough seasons is that like, even though I might have met you through photography, we've, we've now formed a friendship that exists outside of photography. Yeah. And whether you take a picture again for the rest of your life, I'm still going to love you. You're still important. You're still my friend. And I think that's just important to hear. Mm. Um, so I, I can't remember how we got to here, but like, <laughs> I'm, I'm but, so zoned in there. But I'm like, like that, that. I'm involved in that. That's such <laughs> like, oh my God, there's literally, there's so much power there in what you just said. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people need to hear that sometimes that, you know, the material things in the world or the things that we think validate us mm. don't. And people love you for who you are, not for what you, you have. Do. Yeah, and just don't get addicted to the applause because um, imagine reaching the top of your game and everybody is applauding you. You've got the penthouse and you've mm. got the, the murk and you've got whatever you want. And yet you're sitting there and you realise that all this time you confused applause with love. Mm. And you're wondering who actually loves me because right now I'm tired and I just want to take a break. And am I allowed to do that? Will that mean that the fanfare goes? Will that mean that the people around me goes? And that's why you think like, why do so many people at the top, why are they depressed and they commit suicide? Mm. Is it because all this time that we confused applause with love? Yeah. Did people just want love and in the meantime, accidentally got, like you, you just don't know. And I would rather right now be like incredibly grounded, incredibly grounded. Social media doesn't mean a lot for me. I took a break for six weeks. I felt I felt good. It it didn't. I still took pictures. I still went places. And took, but it's good to just know that my sense of worth isn't attached to that. Isn't attached to what I'm doing. Yeah. And often in my private life, and I feel like I have to say this is that when my career's been doing the most and it's incredible, and your DMs are going off and people are coming out to you, and you're like wow, 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 wow. Is often in my personal life when it's the worst. Yeah. Okay. So I'm always like man you don't know what whoever else is dealing with everyone else has got everybody i've never met a person who isn't in some way dealing with something doesn't have some form of hurt or brokenness that they're not dealing with right mm. so my thing is never get so attached to whatever someone else is doing don't get don't care about social media don't be so busy looking at somebody else's plate that your plate do you know what i mean like your food goes cold just be focused and um and it's about finding that balance, right? But, um, so when you asked me when I first came in, like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I guess I'm a photographer. But like, really, <laughs> yeah. I'm this person. Yeah. And there's so much more layers. Yeah. Than... That's why I like to ask that question. Because yeah. 
you do open up a lot of different responses. People say, oh, I do this and this, and I also do that. Or some people just say, I'm a human being, or mm. like Hussein came through and he said, I'm this, that, and the other, but I do yoga on a Tuesday and spin class on a month. Like, yeah, 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 do you know yeah, what I mean? You yeah. get those kind of different responses and, and it, a different insight into every person. I think that's quite mm. a nice thing, to, especially to start with. Um, but yeah, so what's what's next for you with all these projects and things um, going on? And... No, you know what? I actually took a good six months off this year. Oh, really? Yeah, I kind of just, I mean, I still produced work, but nowhere near the capacity. Mm. Um, and it was good and it was healthy. I now have to go back to work. Um, what is next is possibly... Yeah, so I always say, I always get asked, where are you going next? Where are you going next? And I'm like, I've been in London for six months. Like, <laughs> leave me. Um, but I think I'm going to be exploring more of the motherland soon. I think filming some stuff in Kenya, fingers crossed. I don't know. Um, maybe some other trips there. But, and video. I want to start a YouTube. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've been, um, oh, man, I don't know. I feel like people are telling me to do it for like the last five, six years. Yeah even before photography and I've been so stubborn about it yeah. um, and I finally want to do it because essentially like I can't keep sharing 60 second videos on Instagram being yeah. like that's it I actually want to tell like longer stories um, and I just feel like YouTube is the platform it's not going to be daily vlogs I can't walk around with a camera I really want to be present but uh, every now and again you have nice instances yeah. and um, it'll be nice to like film that and to show a bit more of real life because Real life ain't always popping. It's real. There's mm. real struggles and there's other stuff, and it'll just be nice to share some of that. Yeah. So nice. yeah, sounds good. I like that. I think the yeah, I think definitely, you know, through looking through your Instagram and the sixty second videos, I think people would definitely want longer form longer, stuff. Yeah. Just because it's, sometimes <laughs> it's nice, you know, to just indulge in a little five minute or eight minute or however long mm. piece or longer. Sometimes mm. you never know where it might you might end up shooting a film one day you never know a full documentary like listen i'm gonna direct something i would love because you know you always have to have that big goal and i think i didn't know what the big goal was yeah just because so much has happened so fast that i didn't expect that i was a bit like okay what's the goal Mm. um i would love a production company and it's not so much like, I just want a production company, but I meet so much people who are just frustrated artists and they don't even know it. So many young kids that I think are looking for that opportunity. Yeah. So imagine that the jobs that I bring in now, it's not even me filming it. It's like, I've got a team of guys mm. that I really believe in who are from ends, who have got that experience. We're going to put these big boy cameras in your hand and you are going to be so good. You're not even going to be like, oh, they're good because, no, you're good point blank. And now you're filming these long form stories that I haven't even dreamt about. I haven't even done yet, mm. but like, that's the goal. And nice. we are like expert level. We're the best of our field. And um, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. I love that. A little collective of, of oh, people man. to. Oh, yeah. Nice. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. You've obviously traveled to a lot of places <laughs> and hey. you've, <laughs> you've, you've <laughs> been to a lot of different venues and places and you've taken a lot of photos of things but have you got any ridiculously crazy stories from your crazy photography like yeah so when we first really like was getting into photography and i said we was exploring all these crazy places um 
we had heard on like one of these urbex sites about like the mecca the big thing that people tried to get into and it was called millennium mills um you ever seen this massive um I mean, they're renovating now, but mm. it was right by um, Tate and Lyle factory near the Excel Center. I don't think so, no. Okay, well, it was abandoned. It was It's huge. And essentially, I think it was a bread mill. Mm. Um, I can't even describe the scale of this place. Mm. But we had heard about it and we had heard that people would try and sneak in. So like, and we had seen images on one of these weird websites and we were like, yeah we're going to do it. We're going to go to Millennium Mills. We're going to sneak in one day. So we like planned it out. Me and my three friends went and we went down and there was a huge fence. Now I am not the most athletic of people. So I was like, okay. And these are all guys and they're quite sprightly. They were like, you know, they were struggling to get over, but they were getting, I was like, how the heck am I going to get over this thing? I remember like wheeling a bin and being like, I could probably get on there and then throw myself over. Um, And I remember we tried and security would go by. I remember the first time we tried, I think the first day we went to go get over, there was so much security we had to like just wait from afar and then we couldn't go that day. The second day we tried, um, we managed to get over this huge fence to get into Millennium Mills. And then security found us and threatened to call the police. And we were like, oh my gosh, we're gonna get arrested. And then the third day we were like, okay, it's a bank holiday. It's gonna be quiet. And somehow, Again, I managed to climb over this insanely tall fence. It probably wasn't even that tall, but my poor brain. Um, <laughs> and we snuck into Millennium Mills, which was... And Millennium Mills at the time, we didn't know it had asbestos, but we had just heard about it. So we were like, yeah. maybe if we got these masks, we would be protected. No, because that's not how you yeah. actually save yourself from asbestos. And uh, we snuck our way into this building that was probably like... I don't know, maybe eight stories high. It's all stairs. You're walking on the ground and there's some points where the ground gets so thin that you can fall through. And there's like holes in the ground. We went in one room where, and there's some rooms where it's just filled with machinery that still existed there. There's other rooms where, I remember bird poo was so high that you couldn't even get into the room. Can you imagine that? Bird poo that's like 10 feet high. That was just insane. We're like, what the heck is this place? And we snuck around and we took pictures of each other and we were just like, this is so cool, this is so cool. Um, and then we were probably like, okay, we need to leave. Um, left. I then uh, went to the Excel toilets, cleaned myself up and then went to church because <laughs> you go into buildings, but you still love Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we like shared those pictures and uh, we went to like other abandoned places, but nothing, we, we got up to rooftops that we shouldn't have been in, in the center of London. We never broke anything, like, we never broke anything, but we always knew that like, say if there's a construction site and the windows haven't been put in. Yeah. You could get in yeah, there, right? In, yeah. Or if there was scaffolding, to me, whenever I saw scaffolding, I was like, oh, that means I can get to the roof. <laughs> I had, there was no sense in my brain to be like, no, that's not what normal people do. But um, the, London was just our playground, man. And we just did, we just did crazy stuff. We did it in Hong, I did it in Hong Kong too, in New York, Chicago, but like London, there was like more challenge there, more risk. And um, in the end, I remember, 
um, a company getting in touch with me because they were like, we, we see like the work that you're doing and um, we, we want to like do a whole campaign around urban exploring. Urbex, that's what they were calling it. And uh, so they, they hired me. And the whole point was, was that all the illegal stuff that I was doing yeah. <laughs> then ended up giving me this paycheck and it was with Canon. And that like literally started my whole relationship with Canon. And it was a Europe-wide campaign. They filmed like commercials. My face was on billboards. Um, I think I saw, I think there was a Stanley Kubrick exhibition maybe a year ago. Mm. And in Somerset House, my face was in on every screen. Yeah. So we're advertising Canon cameras and they still had the rights to my face with that. And I was where, just like, okay. where was that shot? Was that all shot in London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was just crazy. It was just this big thing. I mean, we I did events with them where um, probably like a year after going into Millennium Mills, now they we were looking for venues and we ended up using Manelli and Mills, bringing all these tech and press people, and we had like got all the legal signings to be in there, and the people that were renovating the company were showing us round, yeah. and I was just like, life is hilarious. Like I broke into this building, I tried three times. We broke <laughs> into this building, and now that one thing has caused me to be here where it's not only earning me money, but now we're, we're back in the building with yeah. Canon. Wow. I remember telling the guy there, like, yeah, he was just like, oh, so how did you manage to do this? And I was like, well, you know this building? <laughs> like a year ago, me and some friends broke in. I mean, we didn't break anything. We, like, removed some cable ties and, and yeah, we took some pictures yeah. from your building. And he was just like, really? That's so cool. And then I thought, like, wow, we should really ask for permission less. I mean, I'm not telling kids to start, don't break anything, don't run up it. But almost like there is no rules to this. Mm. There is no rules. And um, we also got to bring people who were just like into photography, but had never been into Millennium Mills in that building too. And it was crazy for them to experience it. And it was nothing like when we experienced it, they, they gutted it, they cleared it out. There was no mountains of yeah. caca everywhere, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was exciting. That's crazy how that works, isn't it? Like everything kind of coming full circle there. Full with, circle, yeah. From you know the exploring things and getting into places and photographing to then collaborating with it. That's almost like the the circ the cycle of your photography story mm. is that one story. And what was ironic was by the time they were telling I was promoting urban exploring. Me as a photographer, I'd already moved on. Mm. I was interested in meeting people, taking portraits, doing... Yeah. And I was just like, also, the world can't keep up with us. Mm. Do you know how exciting that is? Like, they actually can't keep up with us. So fast forward a year and a half, two years, then I did another campaign with Canon because my story had changed and they wanted to do a thing with my story. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Mm. But um, man, like, I'm excited to see what young people of this next generation yeah. I feel like my mind is going to be blown away I mean it's really blown away sometimes when I see like toddlers being able to like work an iPad and oh, man. I'm like what like, <laughs> if I'd seen one of those when I was five years old I would have thought the aliens had landed and you know? <laughs> but they're just so comfortable I see my little cousins and they're just like they're they know how to it. navigate to YouTube to watch a video to I'm like it's just mad yeah but it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all a bit scary a bit of a weird one First of all, dreamer's disease. Mm -hmm. So my spin on what dreamer's disease means is that it's the disease of dreaming 
that causes us to live unhappy lives because we don't take the action to actually mm -hmm. follow our passions and create a life for ourselves. What would be your definition of the dreamer's disease? Um, I think that's it. I think it's dreaming. I think it's not being a starter. It's being a starter and not a finisher. You know? And that's what my mum was always like. Don't be a starter finisher. Mm. I mean, be a starter finisher, sorry. Mm. That's what she would always say. Is that like, start something but finish it. Um, and I'm still working on that. And um, recently, which I've just said the stuff that I've done, but my biggest thing is that I don't ask enough. Mm. Um, I don't ask for what I really want. Um, one of my friends kept saying, if you don't ask, you don't get. You don't ask, you don't get. And only really recently, I'm saying, I've been putting this in practice for days now. Where I've just been boldly asking for things. Um, and really being surprised by that. Like what? What sort of examples? Um, like, I remember I was sitting somewhere, my friend was like, you want to do an exhibition? And just being like, yeah, I want to do an exhibition, can I use this space? Yeah, yeah, you can. What? Is this really life? Or simply, like, contacting companies? Because I, I've already told you, like, I've been living in that bubble where a lot of stuff has come to me, but... Mm. Um, slowly by slowly, I think by the jobs that's come to me where I've always done that pushback, I realise like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't wait for jobs. I should be in charge of my own narrative. Yeah. There's stuff that you want to do. Like, you don't have to just do it as my personal projects. Like, you could get this stuff funded. You can monetize this. You could, but you've got ideas that you want to do. Like, just go out and do it. And I'm imagine I'm learning that. Like, it's the most basic of things is just, Go out, be in control of your own narrative, ask what you really want um, and just being shot by it. So, mm. so my thing is that, um, yeah, starting something, actually finishing it, putting a deadline. So hopefully by the time this is out, my YouTube, my first YouTube episode will be out. Come on. We'll hold you accountable for <laughs> that now. You've got a few weeks. Um, oh, a few weeks. Okay, yeah. it will definitely be out. Um, and... Yeah, my, my dreamer's disease is is simply like the the perfectionism. Mm. I want to die to perfectionist that perfectionist thing. Mm. I want that like by the time my life is over, is that like I die empty? Because mm. there's one thing I would always hear in school on all my school reports was Holly is good. She has potential, but you know it's the number one comment I'd always get because she's a natural leader. And then they would always say something like, she describes everybody in class. Um, Sounds like my school. Yeah. Course, yeah. <laughs> but it was always that, like, it was always that potential, potential, the word that came up in every single subject mm. that I ever studied. And I hated it. Because it's like, what? Because what you're basically saying is that I'm not living up to what you know I'm capable of. I want to die to potential. I want to be doing everything that is in me to do. Um, and the great thing is, is that I'm surrounded by really bold people like Hussein, um, who are just like go-getters for life. Like there's no chill. He sits somewhere and he's like, oh, I want to do that. And he just boldly answers for it. And I'm just around him like, you can't say, okay, yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that energy. So yeah, mm. that's it. Nice. I like that. I think there's a lot, a lot in that that's just very valuable for people and it kind of ties into the next question in, okay. in, a, in the way that you answered it, but you'll have something different 
here because um, if you could roll back time mm-hmm. and go and speak to a younger version, a younger Holly, mm-hmm. and you could give her three bits of advice or things to start doing from that moment, uh, what would you say? Um, you have to silence the naysayers, the people that will tell you you can't or because they don't understand everything that's in you. And the problem is, is that everybody that gives you advice or tells you something, they're telling you from where their glass ceiling is. Mm. You can only give advice from as far as you've got. And just be more conscious of that, is that like, you are called for greatness. It doesn't matter that you will not do as well in your exams, you will not do as well in uni. Like whatever piece of paper you got, will not never define your greatness um and just create whatever you want to create right now ask more questions create more and don't be afraid to look stupid Mm. nice and then one bit of advice to stop doing from that moment to stop doing yeah stop worrying about what every other person thinks because as soon as you leave school you won't even know their names it won't even matter like just stop worrying Mm. about what everybody thinks just do whatever you want to do i was told i was odd all my life i was an oddball like own that man that's like own being weird and being strange because one day people you'll sit in rooms and people call you cool and you'll be like how did that happen i was never (laughs) cool you know so don't Mm. even worry like coolness is a construct everything just be comfortable in your own skin nice love that i love that it's a great message and to finish things off with what would be your ultimate happiness goal um my ultimate happiness goal i think i'm i'm really happy Mm. but i think it's because i link happiness to gratitude Mm. and i'm so grateful um i was at a meeting i left this event the other day and i was so annoyed from this event and everything they were saying and the rubbish that was coming out their mouth and then i sat somewhere else and we, we had to do this meeting and before the meeting started, I, I just told everyone in the room, no, I'm annoyed right now. I need to stop and give thanks for five things. And while everyone was in the room, it was quite lengthy too, my, my gratitude. <laughs> I gave, I found five things that I was thankful for that day. Um, and by the end of it, everyone was involved and they're like, yeah, yeah. And then I started my meeting. Um, my happiness goal is very much like my grandma. My grandma was probably, I remember writing about this one day when someone said, what is success to you? And I thought, who is the person that I most admire? And it's my grandmother. Hmm. She didn't go on holiday every year. She didn't have the fanciest things, but I admired her the most. And what she did was she had a house with the doors always open and there was happiness, there was happiness because the doors always open, there was always food and she made everybody feel loved mm. and everyone feel welcome. If I can create that, then yeah, that's like happiness because it's not defined on money, it's not defined on, money will never make me happy. But as long as like, I know I can pay my bills, I know my mum's comfortable and I can bring people around me that like literally, and I can recreate home for them. Yeah then yeah i'm happy beautiful love that all right so before we do sign out can you let us know and let the people listening know where they can find you online and find your work and where the youtube channel oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) my name is holly marie cato 
For some reason, Holly Marie is my first name. Mm. For some reason, everybody calls me Holly. Like instantly. Sometimes I get annoyed at emails because I'm like, how dare you show on my name? So I might just call my YouTube Holly Kato because I feel like everyone sees the double barrel and doesn't they they don't want to call me Holly Marie. So I'm just gonna own it. So like you will find me on YouTube under Holly Marie. Oh, so, oh see I did that <laughs> under Holly Kato. I've said it now. Um, you can find me on Instagram at H underscore Kato, C-A-T-O. If you drop me a DM, I actually always reply. My DMs get mad deep. Like, I don't know why. But I hate, like, the whole, oh, thanks. Like, no, let's let's talk. Um, and on Twitter, it is H-M Kato. I'll be honest, I'm dyslexic. I retweet stuff I'm interested in. Um, I leave the odd comment. That's <laughs> about it. <laughs> But Instagram's where it's popping. Um, Instagram and then like there's a website link. But yeah, Holly Marie Kato, Holly Kato, H underscore Kato, all those things. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, look, thank you very much for the time. I've been literally sat here just listening to all the goodness, um, and it's it's been incredible. And I think people who are listening are gonna take a lot, like really mean a lot from this, which is great. So yeah, thank you because I know I know. You, you haven't been busy because you've had six months off, but I know oh, you're a busy lady. Yeah, I was busy today. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I know you're a busy lady, so um, I appreciate the time and getting to have the face to face. Thank you. So there we have it, guys. That was Holly Marie Cato's story. And as I said at the start, you know, she's a very, very warm, personable person and has a real kind of aura around her that just kind of draws you in. And I was just sat there listening to and hanging on to her words. It was incredible. And, you know, I really learned a lot from this. I learned, you know, how that warm nature she has was real pleasure to be around. It makes me think about, you know, trying to be a bit more like that around people. And also how, you know, her, her passion to hear and share people's stories and belief that everyone has a story to tell really rang true. You know, we, we all go through dramas and, and things in our lives and everyone has a story, but we don't often share those stories with other people or, encourage people to share them with us and i think there's a real some real value in what she does there and also her belief that everything will always work out and it will work out and be just fine it was real really refreshing to hear actually and from someone like herself who you know is i guess freelance and lots of things can go wrong at any time or worries about jobs you know she's always just carries this mentality of it will work out so i hope you guys enjoyed that and learned a lot as ever you can hit me up on twitter and instagram at i am alex manzi let me know your thoughts or if there's any questions you have or you know i just like to hear what you guys think because for me the feedback is always incredible and on that note i will leave you i will see you next time and make sure you go out there and chase your dreams this podcast is produced by unedited